joined by Lyman Stone. I might not have the most updated CV because you are a very busy man. So you're all over the Institute for Family Studies as well as AEI and all sorts of respectable institutions. Lyman, it's great to have you with us. It's good to be on the podcast. I thought I'd start by just zooming out and seeing from your perspective, early into the Biden administration here, if you were describing to a Martian a sense of how are you feeling right now politically? There's always two ways to characterize your identity. And one is to attempt to represent your internal life through description of your thoughts and and feelings and things like that. Uh, And the other is to attempt the description that the Martian would give of your your external life. And so I would say that description is sometimes more useful and I think perhaps a more honest portrayal of who we really are and what we really believe. And so the Martian would note that about a year ago, I paid my dues and became a member of ASP. So that's about how I'm feeling. My Kentucky registration says Republican because I want to vote in the the primaries in in my my home state. But yeah, I guess ASP wasn't on the ballot in Kentucky, so I voted for Kanye. But that's about where I am politically right now is just like a plague on both your house. And and nothing Biden has done has really made me feel that's that's an overreaction. Yeah, like what have been the biggest moves so far? What's your assessment compared to other sort of first 90 days administrations? I'm a whippersnapper. I just hit my third date about two weeks ago. I can't really say of all the other first hundred days that I've uh, gotten to commentate on, this one's different in this way. He's been busy, right? Uh, So like the big child tax credit expansion, I think is great, not least because uh, I have a baby due right at the end of 2020. So I'll get like a double whammy on it, but it's, this is great. I should have a child allowance. It's, I'm interested to see how the monthly delivery goes when they start that in July is when they're planning to start the monthly delivery mechanism. This is swell. However, a lot of the other things that Biden has advanced, I think they're things that like on their face, they seem like like stuff I might like, this kind of post-fusionist, uh, we're going to use fiscal policy to provide explicit reinforcement for, for family life and, and for like, dignified work and stuff. But I think that it's one of those situations where what we really have is we have the same old policies just getting a rebranding. We've got a change to the EITC, and it was certainly proposed, I think it was actually enacted, I'm not 100% sure about, about that, to dramatically increase the generosity for singles. And this is in principle, like I'm actually in favor of this. I, I think it's ridiculous that, that we provide an extra labor subsidy if someone's a parent, but if a single person isn't working, we're like, oh, whatever, that's fine. Like society has no interest in, in, in a single person's work because like society does have an interest in this. But if you only crank up the singles, you don't change the, the family rate. What you actually do is you create a bigger marriage penalty. Because right? if you have two working singles, they're both getting a, a real nice single benefit and they get married and part of it's gone. So this is one of those places where it's like on its face, it's, it seems like a good thing. But when you actually get into the trapezoids of it, so to speak, in wonkies, it ends up being really bad. It ends up having really perverse incentives. There's stuff like this with the child independent care tax credit too. Like they proposed, I can never keep track of what things they've proposed to do and what they've actually done. There was this proposal to double the generosity of it. So this is going to help people pay for childcare. So, okay, the only people who can use the CDCTC 
are, are all worker households, that is a single parent who works or two parents who both work, and only if their income is high enough to have a tax liability after other credits. Now, the current child care proposal, which is not passed yet, calls to make the CDC TC more refundable, which would deal with that other part, but it's still it's only for parents who, who conform to a certain distribution of labor. So this is not, this is actually not a, a good way to do this. And of course, it can pay for child care costs, but it can't pay, a parent, a parent can't pay themselves through the CDCTC. Unless, I guess, if they started a an institutional daycare and enrolled their own kids, maybe they could. Well, that's an idea. So there have been things that are like encouraging to see, but on the whole, I think it's just repackaging the same old, reshape the American family to make it friendlier to the needs of employers. It's, it's basically just that policy agenda in new wrapping paper. Yeah. Okay. We're all parents here. When I talk to other sort of normal Joe parents, like normal non-wonky types, it's just, okay, that somehow sounds good, but there's a lot of acronyms and I am exhausted because I've been changing diapers uh, and I just got back from my job. I guess this sounds good, but I, will I ever see it? Maybe. So what's your perspective? Like, why are we addicted to this weird means testing, leveling? Like, why not just cut a check and do direct and, and simplify it? Child care is like the perfect example of this, right? Because you've got the, the child care development fund, which is a fund that pays for block grants state use however they want to subsidize child care for low-income people. And then you also have TANF, which... Look, even as an expert, I don't fully understand if the TAMF child care funds are the same as the CCDF child care funds. Then you have the child care independent, child dependent care tax credit, which is this other thing. And then, and then Biden is also talking about, it's, it's a little unclear if they're just talking about increasing CCDF and CDCTC, or if they're also talking about like an additional program to cap child care expenditure. Like it's just, there's like layers. It's, it's so complicated. So like, why not just, just give uh, a consolidated program? And the answer is, there's a couple answers. One is the way policy happens. And that is policy happens through compromise. Often not everyone can agree on the, the just one big thing approach. And so you end up with a compromise where we can't do the just one big thing. So we do four littler things that we were able to get people to agree on. It's just reality. And yeah, it's frustrating to non-experts, but get over it. We live in a world of compromise. There's going to be complexity. And that's like the, I think the more legitimate, the, but then the other reason or, or a second reason is about how we measure need. Like we say things like, if you give a cat, if you did, if you took all of our child programs, you got rid of them, you replaced them with a cash grant and all the exact same beneficiaries got the exact same amount of spending, but they got it in cash instead of daycare or whatever. Some of those families would use it for some other thing, right? They'd use it to pay off housing debt or credit card debt or buy a car or whatever. And then in a survey, they would still report difficulty paying for childcare, right? Because the number of things that a family, the number of challenges a family faces, the number of need of demands on that budget is practically unlimited. There's always one more thing the money can and should go towards. And if, if families have a different preference set than policymakers, which is very likely to occur, it's, it's a certainty to occur in at least some cases, then some of those families are still going to report stuff that from the policymakers' perspective looks like unmet need. So if they get that money that the 
policymaker was hoping would go to daycare, and they spend it on instead paying off the car loan, which maybe is very important because they need to use the car to get their kid to something um, or to get themselves to work. The, the, from the policymaker's perspective, this wasn't a success, right? Because we still have unmet need for data. Because need measurement is highly targeted, instead of looking at something very general like subjective well-being or, or life satisfaction or some more holistic measure, you're in this like treadmill where anytime you give people cash, effective at achieving any specific goal, because some of the people who get the cash will use it for something they see as a higher priority. So this is often seen as a problem. I see this as a, a pro in favor of cash programs. Okay. The, the policymaker might be a bad judge of what the family needs, and the family might be a better judge. But then this comes to the third reason why we don't do this. Uh, and this is the belief that some people, some parents are very bad judges of what their family needs. And you get this paternalism in various forms. We don't want a parent to use the money we give them to buy drugs. I think pretty much everybody agrees. Child allowances paying for crack would be not a, a good result, but that's if you're just giving cash, you can't really control. And so there is a strong desire not to subsidize adverse outcomes. So this is about loss avoidance right? That even if 99% of the money may go to things that we all agree are really good, the 1% of the money that goes to stuff we all agree is really bad uh, looms larger in our minds, in, in the public consciousness, in, and, and frankly, in the way we do audits, right? When you audit a government program, you don't report the 99 times that it worked exactly as planned. So this reminds me of a couple things, right? Zooming out to why there's such a large focus on child policy right now, a big part of that answer seems to be the demographic transition, what to expect when no one's expecting. This has been a sort of growing part of the discourse over the last few years. The New York Times, for example, we're recording this March 24th, and it's going to air probably a little bit later at the convention, but... New York Times just had a big front page article about it over the weekend. You've written a lot about this. What is going on? What is the demographic decline and why is it of concern? What are the real adverse ramifications of something like society getting more older in general? So just at a very high level, there's kind of two things going on here. One is this long run change with, you can say, modernity, right? Where we go from a society where the average woman has about three surviving children, three and a half maybe, in a pre-transitional society to a post-transitional one, where we think women will have about two surviving children on average. And I should say, people are like, oh, before the transition, women had six kids, well, but half of them died. When you actually account for infant and child mortality, the transition is generally a change from about three or four surviving children to about two. So that's the change. That happened in the U.S. between 1870 and 1920. That's when we made that transition. Then during the baby boom after World War II, we had this super anomalous jump back up to three surviving children per woman, and then it crashed back down. So the baby boom was because the U.S. made this transition a century or more ago. But classically, the very sort of stead 100-year-old demographic paradigm we think that after this transition, fertility will oscillate around 
two children per woman, which means population will be approximately stable, assuming that immigration and life expectancy don't change. If life expectancy increases, then even with low fertility, population will grow because each generation will live longer and will get older as a society. Okay, so this is what happened. And this is what you see everywhere around the world over the last 50 years, every every and increasingly lower income countries as well. So this is in some sense very normal. However, what we started to see in the 70s in some countries and what we've really seen in the last 15 years in a lot of countries is what looks like a strong break below two. That women aren't having about two children per woman. They're having about 1.5. Or in some countries like Korea, for example, they're having about one. This suggests long-run population decline. Now, you can stave it off for a while if your population is getting healthier or immigration rates are high, but in the long run, it's still declining. In the US, our life expectancies are pretty static. They have not risen much, which means we're not getting benefits that. And our immigration adjusted for total replacement rate fertility is about 1.8. So if we have 1.8 babies on average, we'll have about stable population. Right now, fertility is about 1.6, which means over the next 40 years, 50 years or something, we can expect American population to peak and begin to decline. Now, Will birth rates really stay at their low level right now? Probably not, because these are uniquely bad times. On the other hand, fertility rates were falling from 2014 to 2019 when economic times were good. We don't yet fully understand what's driving the current decline in many countries. And uh, there's not a clear solution, uh, which means we can likely expect lowish fertility for a long time to come. So a lot of people are comfortable with talking about policy that's meant to help parents in a material way in terms of making it easier to raise children and to maintain a household against the, the high cost of childcare and that kind of thing. But when you start talking about a explicitly pronatal policy, it makes some people uncomfortable, especially on the left, but sometimes also on the more libertarian right, because they think, okay, well, this is a really personal decision. Why is it policymakers' business how many kids American women are having? It's an, an intensely personal issue. What's politics got to do with it? What's your response to that? Oh, that's a great question. So pronatal is an interesting term. And there's two ways you can think about it. One way of thinking about it is they, what I would call a strict or strong pronatalism, which is you want people to have more babies, and that would be true virtually no matter what. Alternatively, that's what I would call a weak pronatalism. That is, you want people to have more babies right now, but there might be conditions under which your position would change. You'd say, okay, enough babies. I think the strong pronatalist argument is a very difficult sell politically, that pretty much everyone in America, 90% of the population, does believe that it is licit and reasonable to limit fertility in some circumstances. The share of the population that thinks that this is fundamentally illicit is extremely small. So that strong pronatalist argument is never politically winning. However, the weak pronatalist argument is, I think, quite persuasive to people. You say, look, I'm not saying everybody needs to have six babies. I'm saying right now, women on average say they want to have two or three kids as well the vast majority of people say, that's reasonable. This is not crazy. Two or three kids is reasonable. And of course they could just go and have those kids. Like nobody's like stopping you. 
But this would create significant loss of uh, well-being. What we mean by well-being is basically relative income, relative status, and relative consumption. And the reason relative matters is that pretty much everybody judges their own well-being according to their neighbors. This might be a bad thing. We might not like this about humans, but the reality is we all judge our lives according to the yardstick of what appears possible in our context. And what appears possible in our context is different than what appeared possible 200 years ago. So saying you could just have the kids and be poor is not really an argument because the welfare cost is much larger to the same absolute level of poverty. A person at $30,000 of income today feels much worse about it than a person at $30,000 of income 75 years ago. That person 75 years ago was quite wealthy. They felt good about their income. So this is really important. That is, as our society changes, the, and particularly as the opportunity cost of having children rises, that is, as incomes rise and children necessarily in almost all circumstances, have a negative hit on your disposable income, children get more expensive. Even if they're like fixed, even if they're like technical dollar cost is, is relatively stable, the opportunity cost rises directly with rising, which is to say, when somebody says, why should I subsidize the decision? You say, if they're truly a libertarian, maybe you should. But you can say, look, we provide public education. Why do we provide public education? It's because we recognize that without children being well-educated, we have no future. No one's going to pay for our retirement. Even aside from social security, someone need, if, if I'm using my house as a savings vehicle, someone needs to buy my house. And for them to be able to do that, they need a job. And for them to have a job, they need an education. Or if you're relying on the stock market, maybe I'm invested in a company and the company makes, the company is only valuable if someone buys the hot dogs. For them to buy the hot dog, they need a job to pay for it. For them to have a job to pay for it, they need an education. We'll just take that back one step farther. Then to get an education, they must exist. Okay. That is, if you're truly like an anarchist libertarian, okay, do your, you go live on your own. But for those of us who live in a society, we recognize that there is a degree of interdependence and interconnection between generations. And so the next generation must exist. Moreover, even for a libertarian, I would argue that this creates a, a right. It creates, in some sense, an entitlement. That is, if your plan for the future, if your retirement planning, if your actions are only coherent, if other people bear a certain cost, that is, if you are planning for your retirement by saving, by buying gold ingots, right? And, and your plan is when you retire, you're going to sell these to someone. Whatever is necessary for other people to do for your gold ingots to still have a resale value when you retire, they have a right to do. And they have a right to make demands of you to, if you intend to sell your gold ingots. Now, there's a time problem here that you intend to sell your gold ingots very far in the future, and the problems are now. So coordinating this is extremely difficult. And I would agree with libertarians that there's this information problem. There's a coordination problem. But fundamentally, if you intend to sell your ingots in the future, you are creating, you are, you are relying on other people bearing the cost of ensuring 
that there will be buyers in the future. And if you want to sell those ingots, you're going to have to make sure there are buyers. So you're going to have to, you're going to, have to pay for it somewhere. So even for this strict libertarian who only wants to recognize like contract rights, the contract they intend to make in the future, which is not written yet, intends to write it, can create moral obligations in the present. Okay, so let me ask a follow-up question to that. Going back to global population growth from sort of 2.2% in the 70s down to 1.05 more recently, but if we zoom that time scale out, you might say we went from a billion people in 1800 to we're pushing 9 billion right now. So if we go down a little bit and get a little bit grayer, what's the problem? Like why be a soft natalist right now? That's a good question. There are a couple of, there are a couple of questions here. The first is an assessment of that change from 1 billion to nine. Was it good? I would say it was good. I would say this was a good thing. Yes, there are costs, but fundamentally, assuming people have a standard of living that, that they regard as worth living, more people is a good thing, right? If you can have one person who thinks their life is valuable and worth living, or you can have two people who, thinks, who think their lives are valuable and worth living, I would rather have the two people than the one. Very simple. Now, you could get to a point in principle where you have so many people and they're consuming the resource in such a way that a very large share of people think their life is not valuable and not worth it. You could get to that point in principle. You can imagine. But we're not there. The vast majority of people in the world think their life is worth living. Suicide rates are not at especially high historic levels around the world. In the U.S., they're a bit high, but around the world, they're not especially high. And so I, I am not worried that we are close to a point where there's a fundamental population problem. That is, that people do not regard their own lives as worth living because the, there's just too much resource competition. Okay? Maybe there's a few places in the world, or maybe there's a few people who feel that way, but, but this is not the, the modal human state. So then, if there's not going to be a fundamental population problem, then we get second-order population problems. Do, does this population create problems for other, or for other non-human life? Is it driving extinctions or, or, re, or uh, habitat loss? Are we being bad stewards? And I would argue, yes, we're being bad stewards of the world, I would say, of creation. But, but th this actually has almost nothing to do with population. A lot of very sparsely populated states and countries have very poor management of their resource, of their natural resources, in a lot of rather densely populated places do not appear to have ongoing habitats. So for example, in the US and Europe, forest coverage is rising, okay? And we're very densely populated. Forest coverage is actually even rising now in China, but they're very densely populated. Forest coverage is declining in a lot of poor countries. And it's not declining because of population growth. It's declining because of poor policy, weak institutions, weak property rights, or in some cases, excessively strong property rights relating to prior colonial systems that created property rights that were practically untouchable by governments. What we basically see is that the pace of habitat degradation and, and related issues is entirely driven by policy choices that can be made at any population level. And in many cases, low population densities 
give rise to bad environmental policies. That is, when your natural world is so abundant that how could you possibly exhaust it? You do not bother to take care of it. Then we get to these other bigger collective action problems like climate change. And again here, is population the problem? I would say no. I've written extensively about this elsewhere, but suffice to say, countries that have more restrictive population policies 30 or 40 years ago have not seen slower growth in carbon emissions to the present day. This strategy failed because maybe you do succeed in reducing population growth, but usually countries that restrict population growth do so in the hope that it will juice per capita economic growth. It's the economic growth that's driving energy use and emissions, it's not population. It's, it's economic output and consumption. All these reasons to be opposed to a rising population, I don't think are very compelling. I think there is a, 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 an obvious reason to be in favor of population growth. And that is that provided everybody thinks that, that their life is worth living, more is better. And finally, we know approximately the energy potential of, that is, we know the combined energy output of our planetary core and the sunlight that hits us. If we were able to capture all of it using current sort of transmission and generation technologies, we would probably have enough energy for about 20 billion people at a rich country standard of living. We are nowhere close to that. So we can do it. Doing so would be fundamentally good. There's no reason to oppose it. And people continue to desire fertility rates of two or three children each. And we should enable that reasonable desire. I want to be slightly cheeky and, and tee up a question for you that you'll hear from critics of pronatal policy, maybe not always necessarily in good faith, I think, but I, but I think it's an important question, which is you, you see the birth rate sometimes being put in opposition with immigration as a source of maintaining population levels. And so if you care about how many babies are born in the United States, is that, isn't that maybe just a little bit racist? So it makes you think about people like Congressman Steve King, who came under a lot of criticism for saying things like, oh, we can't preserve our civilization with somebody else's babies, which people took that to be flirting with white nationalism. And so if you reject that view, what is the point of pronatal policy, right? Why not just yeah. more immigration? So there's a couple of reasons why not more immigration. First of all, I would say, yes, more immigration. You know what? Legally like well-regulated, legally appropriate immigration is a blessing to the country that we see. Having people who want to come to your country, benefit from the fruits of your institutions and contribute to those institutions is a true blessing. And so we should welcome it. That is why we should have immigration. We should not have immigration because our society is so dysfunctional that we cannot enable our families to achieve their own goals. So we're going to bring in immigrants to solve the problem we couldn't solve ourselves. That is not a good reason for immigration. And frankly, telling immigrants, look, we can't get our house in order, so we'd like to have you come here to prop it up for a few more years before it collapses. I'm not even sure that's an ethical argument to make to that immigrant. Additionally, my argument for pronatalism, this weak pronate, which weak sounds pejorative. I don't mean it pejoratively. I, it's, it's, I'm just saying that it's, it's conditional, is that we should be pronatal because birth rates are far below what women say they want and what parent, what men as well say they want. I just focus on women because one, they have somewhat more reliable statistics and, and two, 
because practically speaking, they're the ones whose bodies bear the brunt of the difficulty of, of this question. But people say that they want two or three kids. That's reasonable. You could bring in however many immigrants you want. It's not going to change that equation, right? Like, great, bring in more immigrants. You'll prop up the population. Social security will be solvent for 20 more years. Lovely, wonderful. I'm good with it. But you still have a problem of people not achieving the life they wanted to achieve. They're still not having the family life they desire. And that is a problem that, that is, is meritorious on its own. Finally, if you invite in immigrants to prop up your labor pool, this is fine. But the thing about immigrants is that they are human beings and they do get old. And if they come here and they also have relatively low fertility, which increasingly is the case, you've postponed your problem, which is great. But you have not eliminated it. In fact, when the bill comes due, the bill is bigger because the population is larger. And the bill will come due because immigration cannot continue forever. Immigration is driven by having poor countries with lots of babies and rich countries with not so many babies. But increasingly, there are fewer poor countries because those countries are getting richer. And also, they're not having as many babies. Fertility rates are falling everywhere. And there are more and more countries that are rich and don't have babies. And so there's more competition to receive immigrants, and there's a drying up supply. So for all these reasons, while I am in favor of increased levels of well-regulated and legal immigration, it is not a solution to low fertility. It is a solution to some of the social problems arising from low fertility but it is not a solution to low fertility. Okay, so what I'm hearing is there are some sort of unique arguments for the natalist position. There's the sort of what women want argument, right? So we don't currently make it super easy for women to fulfill the life they want and their preferences they want according to how they self-report. So if we could do that, they'd be happier. And then I still have some questions on the soft versus strong natalism. If your life happiness margin is not committing suicide and the planet can support up to 20 billion people, no problem. I think that that sounds like a recipe for as many babies as uh, we can get anyone to have for the foreseeable future. But leaving that aside, so I don't want to get on a rabbit hole. The I, These are unique to me because if I go back to the New York Times article, for example, it's like the most common things I see people say about the demographic decline and getting older, it's very negative arguments. Like we need to increase fertility to avoid the dire consequences of a graying society. So right. that doesn't, you haven't focused on that so far, but could you paint a picture for them of what that would actually look like? What, what would change in our lives day to day and societies if current trends continue? I don't talk a lot about the dire social consequences of low fertility. And the reason is, so imagine for a moment that you look out your window in your neighborhood and you see a tank rolling down your street and you stick it out the window and you say, why are you here? And they say, we're here to keep you safe. You don't feel safer because you go, why do you need a tank to keep me safe? What is wrong? There's a similar problem in pronatalism that we do this. You need to have babies because otherwise the future will be awful. And it's wait. But if I'm the only parent who listens to this and I have a baby, my child is going to grow up in the future you just told me is going to be awful. So it's this catch-22 that 
trying to get people to do this very future-minded thing, having babies, by telling them how awful the future is going to be is stupid. This will never work. You cannot fear people into having babies. So that's why I don't focus on this, because I don't think it's persuasive. And secondly, I do think the most important argument is not the social consequences, but the individual consequences. That is, if a society wants to be poorer and working longer years of their life, and more unequal and less dynamic and more vulnerable and have more reactionary politics, I guess they have a right to that uh, because those will be the outcomes of durably low fertility. I guess a society is entitled to make that choice. But the individual element is where you really have this mismatch of what people clearly want. So all that said, though, there are negative consequences of very low fertility in the long run. I've talked a bit about this intergenerational transfer idea. We think about it with Social Security and Medicare, and those are a real problem. But in some levels, in some way, they're policy problems. The bigger problem is that low fertility reduces the rate of return on everything in society. The slower population growth is, the slower economic growth will be. The result is just less economic churn in general. This means less economic mobility. This means higher importance of intergenerational wealth. This means lower odds that you'll be better off than your parents. This means less entrepreneurship, less innovation, less patenting. This means I can go on. Imagine a world where, where population is steadily declining and the average house has declining real value over time. What happens to your mortgage? What happens if houses are no longer savings vehicles? This becomes a problem. Um, what happens when your highest return, when your highest returning asset is cash? No need to hold bank deposits. Just fill a safe in your house with cash. But suddenly, like physical robbery would, would, would be a huge economic issue again. So you get all sorts of problems with this sort of low growth society. It ultimately becomes a Malthusian society. That is, we know what a zero population growth society looks like because this was human society for thousands of years before the Industrial Revolution. And the answer is aristocracy. It's lords and peasants. It's no growth. Nothing changes for thousands of years. Not literally nothing changes. In fact, much changes. But that's what you get. You get societies of elite extraction. Also, like lots of people dying alone and spending decades of loneliness near the end of their life and not enjoying the, the moments of joy and happiness associated with youth and, and all this stuff. So the costs of this are numerous and occur at many levels. But, but again, I think no one is going to be persuaded to have a baby because they need to do it for the economy. So when we talk about this, yeah, there's real costs, but what we should be thinking about is how can we enable people to get the things they already say they want. So one criticism of uh, pronatal policy is regardless of what people say they want, uh, it does seem that there are these really strong long-term, you know, cultural headwinds against fertility that lead people to maybe to want fewer children, or even if they want them to, to value them less against other goals. And so how do we know what the limits to policy are in this area? So we don't know. We don't know what the limits of policy are. I don't think that's a reason not to try. But I think saying we don't know how much we can raise fertility is not a reason to not attempt. 
especially since we have lots of documented cases of many countries successfully increasing their fertility rates through pronatal policy. So it's certainly not a reason not to try. But on this question of people say they want this, but do they really want it? People say, I want a million dollars, but that doesn't mean anything. I want a yacht, but that doesn't mean anything. Or the same, you look at revealed preferences. However many kids they really have is revealed preferences. But this is not true. First of all, for for a revealed preference model, you would need to see how many kids people do, how many kids do people say they want, how many kids do people actually have, and then is there a difference in their life satisfaction or well-being? So if you see that everybody has fewer kids than they say they want, that is not a revealed preference. You would then need to also see that people who had a bigger gap between the number they had and the number they say they wanted were no less happy or indeed happier than other people. That would show a revealed preference. Okay, so that's just people say these words revealed preference and they have no idea what that what it means. They think that it just means anything that is is necessarily what people desire, but that is that is not what a revealed preference model is. But secondly, this idea that what's really happened is people just value other things more. There is some truth to it, and so I've done some work on this, particularly looking at people's attitudes towards career and work. And I find that as people value a meaningful career more highly. They tend to have fewer, they tend to desire to have and to actually have fewer children. This is very important. The point is, this causes them to desire to have fewer children, which is to say, this would be reflected in lower fertility preferences. But since we actually still observe relatively high fertility preferences, that's not the vehicle we're talking about. So the problem is a lot of these, well, social values have changed and people desire other things now. Yes, that's true but that should show up as lower stated fertility preferences. If people actually just don't desire as much. So then you have to get into a story. Well, it's not that they stop desiring it. They desire these other incompatible things. Okay, maybe what we actually observe is that as countries get richer, they do not tend to place a lower priority on family in terms of self-rated, but they do tend to place a lower priority on That is, as countries get richer, their self-presentation tends to often become somewhat more familistic, not less. And secondly, we have a lot of surveys where we ask people about their life priorities. But it turns out people who value family more highly, or who say they value family more highly, do not tend to have a different mismatch between their fertility preferences and their fertility outcomes. That is, the mismatch is not driven by differential prioritization of family versus leisure time or social life or work or something like that. Empirically, this does not appear to be the driving force, which is to say this idea that this is is like not a a deeply held desire that people is bumped. These fertility preferences are deeply held. And actually presented a paper just last week at the Canadian Population Society showing that unintended births do have meaningful negative consequences for women's fertility. That is a birth higher than the number of children that a woman says she wants to have. But an unintended birth, that is when a woman expected to have another child and she does, lead to durable increases in her happiness. That we can directly test this. And it turns out having kids you want to have increases your happiness over a decade. So this whole view that these preferences are like spurious in some sense, uh, it's just these preferences are meaningfully associated with, with people's happiness in real data of real people's lives. 
And uh, now excess fertility is also a problem. Having kids you don't want to have is problematic for happiness. But these are real preferences that the people actually do care about. They're not castles in the air. Now, when somebody says, oh, I want to have 11 kids, okay, maybe that is not a totally serious respondent. But the vast majority of people are saying one, two, three, or four. This is the, this is, I forget exactly, but I think it's 80 or 90% of responses are in that range. All right. So let me shift gears here to the sort of elephant in the room. You've written a little bit about climate change and your background started as an agricultural economist. Increasingly, the dialogue seems to be around the, the dire urgency of acting in the next 10 years to avoid the worst emissions pathway scenarios. What do you think about climate change as an issue? So I actually, I gave a talk about this at California State University of Sacramento a few years back about the ethics of having children. And I came on to talk about the environmental ramifications of childbearing. I, I can, so I, I could wax on about this for an entire weekend if you'd like. But, but fundamentally, and I mentioned this earlier, countries that enacted more population control decades ago have not had lower emissions trajectories. The classic example is China. Strictest population policy in the world there for a while, fastest growth in emissions. You know why? Because restricting population does not necessarily, it can, but it doesn't necessarily reduce economic growth, particularly at the low level, at low levels of economic. So at a high level of economic development and at a global scale, lower population growth reduces economic growth. But at a very low level, when there's a lot of subsistence, agriculture, lower population growth can sometimes be economically advantageous. So first of all, just like as a strategy, it doesn't work. Okay. Secondly, more broadly about climate change, I should say right up front, I believe in climate change. I believe in anthropogenic climate change. I accept all of the consensus models that, that we have. I think that it is urgent and we need significant action in very near term. But if you look at the IPCC's reports on this, they don't recommend any population. There's, there's no scientific consensus on population policy. And the reason is not that they were afraid to touch it. The reason is that the issue is urgent. So if you think about population policy, when would population policy reduce even 30 years from now? Okay? It does nothing today. Nothing. In fact, it makes today worse. Because guess what? Dollar for dollar, Spending on baby stuff is a lower emission than spending on non-baby stuff. Diapers are lower carbon emissions per dollar spent than wine or fancy cheese or airplane tickets or whatever. Minivans are more carbon efficient than than small than like than a lot of moderately smaller cars. Now, if you're talking like a hybrid smaller car, or whatever, but uh, controlling for like engine type here. Particularly when you count for how many people are in that minivan on a per person basis, there is no evidence that having a child causes a household's carbon footprint to increase. And the reason you can know this intuitively is that having a child does not increase your income. Okay? It doesn't. Your consumption footprint is still driven by the same budget constraint as it was before. In fact, often your budget constraint is lower because sometimes one parent leaves work. Okay? So, this idea that having a, child, a child is this like huge carbon footprint is totally bogus. And you can look at the academic research under it and realize that they're not showing the carbon footprint of a child. They're showing the carbon legacy of a child. The carbon legacy of a child is a mathematical fabrication. 
it's not actual carbon outputs. It's adding up all the descendants of that child and then allocating shares of them to current people. And it's okay, but like when those descendants are born, we may have different technology that has like different carbon and the world may be the difference. Like we need to reduce emissions now, like right now, like immediately. And in, in this, one of the most important things we can do to reduce emissions is maintain stable energy markets. So when you think about energy switching, let's say we want to turn off a coal plant. That'd be great for the environment. But to do that, we need to replace it with something because there's still energy demand. So let's say we want to replace it with a hydroelectric dam. Okay, building the dam is expensive, which means you're only going to build it if you get good return on investment. But you're only going to get good return on investment if you have a growing market. You're only going to have a growing market if you have a growing economy or a growing population, which is why in West Virginia, they keep extending the life of coal plants because there's not a growing market. But in Arizona, you can turn that coal plant off and build a solar farm because guess what? There's a growing market for energy in Arizona. When you actually think about the business side of energy switching, you need the market to be growing. Because otherwise, it becomes more cost-effective to just, just roll over, just, just refurbish that coal plant a little bit. Now, there are uh, complications to this case. The rapid growth in Africa has led to a massive increase in coal plant construction. However, uh, a considerable part of that is just because China really wants to keep their steel and concrete coal industries afloat. And so they use their Belt and Road Initiative to subsidize their coal, steel, and, and concrete industries, and there's nothing their coal, steel, and concrete industries love more than building power plants because it uses tons of all those things. So I would argue that the real issue going on in Africa is not their rapid energy demand growth per se, but just Chinese industrial policy. And I would note that even in the U.S. case, the problem for U.S. emissions is not that our population or economy is growing too. It's just not the problem. Partly, we're already reducing our emissions. So like mission accomplished. But the real problem is policy. We all know this. The problem is we should have a carbon. That's the problem. That is politically difficult to do. But acting like you're going to have some individual like self-flagellating solution to the collective action problem of climate change as a substitute for policy is nonsense. If you choose not to have that child, Okay, fine. You're going to turn around and spend the money on something just as carbon intense. And by the way, a similar thing actually applies to like vegetarianism as well. You choose not to eat that meat. Okay, you just lowered demand for meat, which means price shifted a little bit lower. But guess what? There is a highly price sensitive consumer in China or Indonesia who will buy that meat. So speaking of the self-flagellating, um, I, I want to connect this issue of climate change back to fertility preferences, because anecdotally, at least you hear a lot of people in the news saying, I don't want to have kids either because they see it as a form of environmental activism or on a more fundamental level, they have a kind of pessimism about the kind of world that they think their kids are going to grow up in, um, especially because of climate change. And as someone who has studied the preferences issue in depth, is that a real thing on a large scale? That is a great question. I actually just, I have a survey that I field every six months or so of reproductive age women in the US. And I ask about climate change in the survey. And what I find uh, is that women who are worried about overpopulation 
do have lower fertility preferences, lower fertility intentions, and lower fertility outcomes, even with lots of other controls. But women who are worried about climate change do not have lower fertility preferences. And these are not the same women. There's overlap. So if you think of a Venn diagram, there are women who are worried about both. And there are women who are worried about climate change, but not overpopulation. And these women tend to be fairly pronatal. They have somewhat high fertility preferences. And my theory on what's going on is these are people like me or my wife. We want to have a lot of babies. And therefore, we worry about the future. Duh. I am worried about climate change because my children will experience it. And then on the other hand, you get people who are worried about overpopulation, but not climate change. What are these people worried about? They're worried about food shortages. They're worried about too much traffic. And I can say some of them are worried about too many Black people. They're worried about who is having those babies. So a lot of the actual beliefs driving low fertility preferences are not what we would call uh, far left views. They are in many cases views we would identify as far right. They're associated with radical individualist preferences. That is, uh, a, I would say, a non-solidaristic view of family or they are associated with straightforwardly racist preferences. And an astonishingly large share of them are associated with, that is people say that they're just like, traffic is like a huge issue. They're like, like no more people, there's too much traffic, which that's the one that I'm just like, have you not heard of trains? But yeah, climate change, it probably matters. There's probably some element of climate change reducing fertility preferences, but this is not a huge, this is not actually a huge factor. So that brings us back to policy again. Thomas Friedman, remember he wrote that that chapter article or whatever it was, like China for a day. And he still loves democracy, but he wants to be king for a day and, and just make all these quick policy changes that we need to that our institutions are unable to do. So what's the policy approach for fixing our approach to policy? Like, how can we make, we've known about many of these changes for a long time, right? What where do you think we're, what's your realistic guess about where some of this stuff is headed? Anything yes. you think we can do? Um, I have no forecast. I think if there's one thing we've learned from the last 20 years of American politics, it's that any attempt to forecast the future is unwise. So I don't know where policy is going to go. But in terms of can we solve the messiness of no, we are humans. It's messy. Get used to it. Deal with it. Get down in the weeds and learn to pull them up. You do not have patience for working with other humans in their human. Grow up. The whole complaint about, well, it's, it's just impossible to do anything now. No, it's not. Things get done. Things happen. We have a child allowance happening. Um, and so it took a pandemic to do that. No, it didn't. It took 53 senators or something. Like, it is possible to make changes. Things do happen. History does. I think confessing a kind of defeat is unwise. Now, is it harder than in the past? Maybe. Are there more voices clamoring for attention? Perhaps. But there is a lot that can be done at the state level. There's a lot that can be done at the local level. I study pronatal policy. A lot of the, a lot of the pronatal policy cases that get studied are not national policies. They're policies enacted by subnational units, by states or provinces or cities or counties. If there's something you want to see done, make it happen. Get off your butt, go to City Hall, 
talk to your legislator, talk to whoever, weed up a storm, whatever you need to do, get out there and do it. Okay, the pushback on that would be this growing line on both left and right about the elite neoliberals who are able to run everything and who are removed from what you might do as an average citizen in terms of electoralism or advocacy work, et cetera, et cetera. Are you sympathetic to that? There are elites who have disproportionate influence. That's true. And in the first few elections in the U.S., less than 2% of the population voted. So maybe it's harder to get things done now than in some previous period, but it is not as hard for the average person now to make their voice heard as it was in 1820. Now, the voice of the three of us might be a little bit more diluted. That is, I'm assuming, property holding white men. Perhaps it would have been easier for us to make our voices heard in 1820. But for most people, it's gotten a lot easier to make your voice heard. So, of course, the problem is that there's just a lot more voices nowadays. So you might have to work harder. I don't know, like instead of, you might have to work harder. So like your ancestors had to do really easy things like fight a revolution or fight a civil war. You might have to like go to Washington DC twice a year and knock on a congressman's door with like a hundred of your friends. I know it's asking a lot. Your ancestors died for this, but should you really have to call someone? Calling someone on the phone is very difficult for a millennial. How could you do such a thing? It's so difficult. But I guess you could take up your cross and, and found a nonprofit organization in your community to promote things you think are good. It would be asking a lot. But the Lord's help, perhaps we can suffer and write letters home to mom about the difficulty on the front lines of the policy debate. Okay. It's not that hard, okay? I am a no one with a Twitter account. Like, I don't, I never, I don't have some big pull, bully pulpit, okay? And yet, like, things get read. There, there. It is possible to get your thoughts in front of the eyeballs of people who make decisions. And if you are persuasive, you will persuade some of them. And you might not persuade all of them, but. If you don't persuade all of them, perhaps your children will persuade them or your children's children. You are not engaged in a political project of four years, but of 400 years. And in that, I would say, yes, I am waving the liberal flag. I am waving it proudly. This is a centuries-long project of making a more perfect union. And so, yeah, I might not see my political project fully accomplished. So what? My ancestors didn't see their political project fully accomplished. That is life. We're on easy street. And it feels so sweet. Cause the world is but a treat.